grassroots organizing and activism after an anti-immigration bill that legalized racial profiling in Arizona, Senate Bill 1070, when it passed. Uh, Tomás became a community organizer in 2010, helping to promote civic engagement and comprehensive immigration reform. Since then, Tomás has worked with various organizations working for different causes such as immigrant worker rights, veterans issues, and housing discrimination. He is a veteran of the United States Marine Corps and is a graduate of ASU with a BA in Transporter Studies with an emphasis on immigration policy and, econ and economy. And today we also have our founder and CEO, Gabby Cardenas. Gabby is instrumental in bringing our marketing campaigns to life. As an industry leader in marketing and sales for over 20 plus years, she has driven to open the first Latina-led digital advertising firm in Phoenix to create a meaningful impact and social change in Phoenix and beyond. Um, Gabby. Hi, thank you, Diana, for the great introductions and for giving us a little bit more background on our powerful guest, Alex and Tomas. We are so happy to have you both here to discuss the topic of 2020 Latino vote, voter insights and 2022 strategies. Um, it's really great to be in this space today as both um, are two individuals that inspire me professionally and personally, and they, um, they, they do a lot for our communities. And we're grateful that they are clients and long-term activists, organizers, and friends of Colibri Collective. We welcome both Alex and Alex Gomez and Tomas Robles, co-executive directors of Lucha, and we're, um, they're going to share a little bit more about um, their experiences in, in, in the political and organizing space. Um, we're going to take a deep dive into some of these questions, and then we'll open it up um, for dialogue uh, for our guests. So welcome, Tomas and Alex. We're excited to have you both here. Thank you for having us. We're so excited to be here. Yeah, I so, appreciate it. Thank you. So we'll start um, with Tomas. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about um, Lucha and a little bit of background on how it did um, get started? Yeah, you know, um, Alex and I always talk about what the history of Lucha is. Um, kind of before our first iteration, the first iteration and the second, many people think that um, Alex and I are the founders of the organization. Um, which isn't necessarily the case. Lucha actually started in 2010 um, after the SB 1070 came out where it was a huge ruckus and a huge um, just energy shifting from all of us who were tired of bills like this becoming the norm. And so Lucha was created alongside its sister organization, um, Arizona Center for Empowerment, which is our nonpartisan organization of the two. Lucha is more partisan or, you know, for um, for people that work in politics of 501c4. And so it started out of the ashes of SB 1070 and began to focus on building up coalition spaces um, from a nonpartisan side. So ACE, Lucha's sister organization, was one of the founding members of the One Arizona C3 table that exists here in the state for Latino uh, civic engagement. Um, and so Alex and I ended up taking over leadership um, in 2014. Uh, Monica Sanchefer is the founder of the organization, along with a board uh, that consisted of community members that were tired of, again, anti-immigrant 
rhetoric in our state. And so when Alex and I took it over in 2014, we decided to shift it from a immigrant-centered organization to an economic justice-centered organization. And for us, what that meant was, while immigration was still a top-of-mind issue, while we still um, focus it because that's what brought us into the movement, we knew that in the space of Arizona, there were so many organizations working and making that their focus that we wanted to take a deeper dive in the day-to-day lives of our communities and immigrant families. And so economic justice centered around um, how folks work, how they're treated at work, how much pay is. And from there, it kind of shifted not just our thought process, but also shifted our abilities to be able to move work politically in the state. Thank you, Tomas, for that background. Alex, um, both of you have been involved on the ground and you've experienced um, high-level organizing. Could you please expand on how I'm sorry, on how those strategies for mobilizing Latino voters have shifted over the years, um, how you've had to pivot, um, and specifically how you see the change from 2018 um, to the 2022 midterm elections. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Such an important topic of conversation. Um, And You know, as I look on the last 10 years of organizing that has taken place in the state and really organizing that came from a place of pain because of the targeting that our communities experienced um, from Sheriff Arpaio, from Jan Brewer, the then governor, and then also because of SB 1070, the racial profiling law. We look at... um, how we have been engaging the Latinx community in um, voter participation as the first phase um, of the struggle being one of responding to the pain. Um, And so through the early work of marching, of protests, of direct action, and also um, know your rights, what we quickly realized was that our communities had been completely left out of the political process. Our communities had not been invited to register to vote, even though we were a third of the Arizona population. Our communities had not been um, targeted by local candidates uh, for them to participate. So you had, um, you know, dominant, Um, white culture candidates that were in the city council and that were at the state legislative level um, governing over minority districts, um, majority minority districts. And so upon realizing that, you know, our communities were grossly left out of the electoral system, we decided that it was time to not only march, not only provide know your rights, but that we also had to do the work of voter expansion. So for those first few years in Arizona, the work was to get our folks on the permanent early voting list, which is currently under attack at the legislature now. 
but the work was also to be able to um, ensure that our communities um, were voting and participating. So that meant that, you know, we couldn't just knock on a door during one election cycle, have one conversation, and then completely ghost on our communities. What it meant is that it demanded rigor of us and for us to continue the conversation even after the election was over because the work starts after the election is done. There is the legislature that we have to do. There are issues that we have to anticipate um, and then conversations that we have to have with our communities around what's important. So as you know, time went by, we were able to register um, now we're proud to say that we have been able to register over 500,000 um, Black, Indigenous, people of color, Latinx community in these last 10 uh, years. But then also what that has meant is that our sophistication in the way that we run campaigns has also increased. So though we were running campaigns for our survival, you know, in 2010, we are now running campaigns in a proactive, visionary way that looks to the next 10 years of Arizona. And so 2018 was particularly important because this was a time where we decided that we were going to run elections our way, that we were going to center the candidates um, that mattered to our communities, that centered our communities. But we were going to do this in... Um, you know, providing billboards that were culturally relevant and relatable to our communities, sending out mailers that were colorful and spoke to our gente, and knocking on doors and having longer conversations, but also creating an apparatus that um, went and knocked on majority community of color doors by communities of color. Because often, the other shift that has happened is um, grassroots community organizations have been seen as the muscle and the field operation, but not the strategists, not the digital experts, not the communications experts. And what you'll find is that we have been doing all of that and holding it, um, but centered for our communities, for the communities that have been the least engaged. But now, as you'll see, and we saw in the historic 2020 election that Latinos participated at historic rates, and that's because of grassroots organizations like ours and our partners that are investing in targeting our communities um, in, in ways that matter um, to our communities to feel seen and invited into the process. Thank you, that was really elaborate, and it does um, give a good perspective of how the shift um, is gonna take place, especially when we look at the challenges that we're going to face in 2022, the, 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 the horrible work that's being centered around border suppression right now is going to make it even more challenging um, for our voters. But one of the things that I could say as a um, communications expert, we can't stop the, the education process. And um, your Lucha gets it, Lucha lives it. Um, but when we look at um, other organizations or other um, even candidates alone, 
they don't believe in educating the the Latino um, voter until at the end um, when they see that they might have extra money or when their polling is off. And I think that's one of my biggest passion points is that you, the investment needs to be done early on, ongoing. We need to empower our communities to vote. Um, and it, it's, it's great to hear your perspective from the um, organizing side. Um, and yes, you are the muscle and we should always be the, the ones also um, be included in the strategy alone because we know how to mobilize our communities. So thank you. Now we'll um, ask Tomas, uh, why should candidates and organizations pay more attention to Latino voters in 2022? The reason why more candidates need to pay attention to voters is because we've already shown that our commitment to building this power and showing that our political system is representative of our community was shown last year. Um, we broke records as a community um, where for the first time ever, over half of all eligible Latino voters um, voted elections. And so that means real power. That means billions of voters. And it also means that um, while Latinos alone in the state of Arizona in, uh, in particular may not solely win an election statewide, you cannot win an election, um, especially as a progressive candidate, without significant Latino support. And so what we know is that for Latinos to be motivated to vote for a candidate, the candidate needs to understand the issues that um, our community cares about and the issues that we want to see addressed if we choose to put you in office. And so the work that we do is to ensure that our community can have that connection to candidates and so that they can ask them direct questions. They can talk about what it is that the candidate cares about and how he or she plans to meet the moment when it comes to these political issues and how to deal with them. And so for us, we believe that um, one of the large reasons why Arizona has shifted the way it has in terms of electing a democratic president for the first time in a generation to um, centering uh, Latinos and people of color in a way that we've never seen before is, is directly related to the political power that we have been able to showcase through our civic engagement. And so you're seeing, you're going to see more ads, you're going to see more um, interest in the Latino community, especially as a voting block. And for us, we want to make sure that the candidates that represent our values understand that value because it's going to be eventually a, a competition of what, um, of which of our, you know, competing parties, what they choose to invest in when it, turn, when it comes to um, the issues that we care about and the candidates that we want and the, um, and the laws we want to see passed. So we're here to stay. We're not going anywhere. In fact, we're increasing in numbers and power. And um, the reason why Lucha exists is to ensure that those voices are heard at a consistent level, day in and day out. And candidates are starting to recognize that. It's why the Lucha endorsement now has become such an important um, element of a progressive candidate's race over the past couple of election cycles. When I say election cycles, I mean 
the 2018 midterm elections along with the 2020 presidential elections, we've seen that um, if Lucha believes and it's if Lucha and its members believe that you represent the values of our organization, that means that we could that means that event potentially hundreds of thousands of voters are going to hear your message and it's going to be endorsed by lucha and we're going to be the messenger and as the years have gone on lucha has become one of the most trusted messengers when it comes to um, latino electoral politics here in the state thank you tomas uh, that is true we live it um with you as your partners and and we do see that when you do take on um, when, you, when you do endorse a candidate, you, you take it to another level, you humanize them, um, you, you make sure that you position them um, based on their, their values. And so you have become a trusted source. People look at Lucha as, who should I vote for? Um, and so that has definitely mobilized our communities and helped many candidates um, win, that, win those seats. Uh, the next question is for Alex. Uh, so what is the current temperature sentiment with Latino voters in present time? Oh, Gabby, this is this is opening up a, a whole conversation right here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure Tomas is like, just let me chomp at this one, too. Um, but there have been a lot of, you know, commentary around who the Latino voter is. And, you know, words like monolith, defector, apathetic have always been used to describe our community um, and how they vote. But what we like to say is that we need to, you know, flip this analysis on its head and really demonstrate that it's um, inadequate and that one size fits all strategies have never worked. And in Arizona, we're demonstrating that um, when you invest in grassroots year round power building organizations, that are centered in a lot of what Tomas just named, um, candidates that are value line, that are not corporate centered um, issues and leading with them because those are core to our community's participation. The issues are why our communities are participating because it's so difficult nowadays, right? Whether it's a minimum wage, whether it's paid family leave, um, there's so many issues that our communities are fighting for um, because they currently have lack of access too. And so what I will say is that from our vantage point, Latinos are participating at historic levels. Latinx and black voters saved democracy in this past election. And what's more, is that our communities have been at the helm of engaging communities that did not know how to access the ballot. 
And when I say that, what I mean is that undocumented communities go out there, share their story in 115 degree weather. And in this past year, risked it all in the middle of a pandemic with a mask, a face shield, and a virus that was potentially life-threatening, but our community said, we're going to go out there and risk it because the threat of the previous administration was greater than the pandemic, right? Like the resilience of our community is shown through our vote. Arizona voters, because of the long um, organizing work that has been done over years, and not just the boom and bust cycle that we see with your traditional candidate campaigns. What that has demonstrated is that um, our voters understand the impact of their vote, but our voters also understand that they are voting for a family member that maybe has lost their right to vote because they have been systems involved or their family member who um, they are within a mixed status family household and they're voting for that parent that can't participate in an election, um, but is affected by the policies that we're seeing at the legislative level and at the federal level currently also. Um, so the Latino voter is this rich mixture of experiences that are brought to the ballot box on the day of election, um, but that because of the resilience continues participating even after the election is over. Wow, that left me with so much emotion because um, it is true. We vote as a family. We vote um, for um, values that align with us, with extensions of our family, and and it becomes a proud moment. So when you see these voter suppression bills, it hurts me for those families that were the first, they voted for the first time that they, we want them to continue to believe in the system. And it's, it's, um, yes, we're not monolithic. I mean, uh, we had a conversation last week um, with uh, different consultants and it's interesting to hear from the perspective of a, a Latino, Latina, own firm that there's to invest in talent that represents the communities that we're going to go after and that was my biggest takeaway that we cannot have these firms just hire one-offs just to win a campaign Um, we have to continue to invest in our communities and if we want to represent and build build um, build them up we have to build them up in all levels, not just internships, not mid-level. And so um, we still see it. And my commitment as a firm is to continue to uplift talent and to uplift them in all levels and not just speak of it, you know, when, when now the Latino vote is hot and it's important because 2020 showed us that. Oh, yeah. Rules have been changed for a lot of us now, especially um, with the way we're showing up. Is like um, Alex said it. Like we know 
the type of rigor and passion that it takes to to ensure that we're heard and now that we've been heard we're not going to let up yes thank you for thank you for elaborating more on that um what i wanted to ask um you know i think i think this goes to your your investment is not just um is re well your investment is not just monetary it's it's human capital it's resources is being out there um and once you endorse a candidate um you fully endorse them in all levels but what happens um, after they're in that seat? How do you hold them accountable? Um, especially, you know, as we as we looked at the first 100 days of Biden, as we look at what's going on with cinema, and then we take it to another level with Mark Kelly. How do you um, how do you hold them accountable? Uh, if you could share that with with um, with everyone here, please. And whoever whomever wants to take this one or both yeah i think it'd be good for both of us to jump in because i mean both of us have to have these conversations especially um at at the level that mark and kirsten are um they're senator they're u.s senators and so we're dealing a lot right now with the aftermath of the election the aftermath of the fact that nationwide uh, we have a majority as Democrats for the first time um, in years and there is potential to really undo a lot of the wrongs that have been created by the um, by the Trump administration and by Republicans in the in the House and Senate and so it hasn't been easy and um, you know we've been pulling our hair out and having these difficult conversations um with senator kelly but we're also in a fight we're in a fight to be heard and you know senator cinema is one of the top targets of our fight that's right Oof, i'm holding back so much right now <laughs> in this conversation um let me set the context a little bit too in 2018 our communities went out and ran the most um ambitious and expansive campaign that we could to get cinema elected that means that we expanded into the flagstaff area that um we scaled as much as possible and most of all and most important is that we put our credibility on the line and we had really difficult conversations with community at the door about um, some of the votes that she took. Because contrary to the conventional wisdom of traditional vendors, there's often like, well, Latinos don't pay attention. The señoras and señores at the doors and the young people at the door were saying like, well, you know, she voted for Kate Saw or, you know, she, um, stood behind a really bad bill at the legislature when she was um, a representative. And so they were reminding us and we had to sit there and explain um, why she was the better candidate um, over Martha McSally then. And so for us, um, that means a lot because when we're going to the door, 
we are trying to be um, an extension of the concerns and the vision for positive change that our community has and bring those conversations directly to these legislators. And so the most disappointing fact is that cinema had not even spoken to our members that were out there knocking on doors for her, making calls, um, running digital program, um, you know, putting their credibility on the line with their neighbors. And so that matters when we see these candidates taking the types of votes they are currently taking um, to stall the advancement of our community's wages with what we with the show that we saw on um, her voting down the fifteen dollar minimum wage increase at the national level at the federal level, so that you know for us when our members and our endorsement committee comes together and says what are we going to do about this, we get, we begin this brainstorm process and our organizing director and our organizers go out and they begin to phone bank. They are currently doing what's called a deep canvas to make sure that we're having those conversations at the doors with people now on you know, the votes that these senators are taking, um, how they are impacting their lives. While we're doing this canvas, we're also asking people at the door to drive calls directly to these senators. But it doesn't stop there. Our folks are also going to their offices um, and doing protests and doing actions because the time is now if we are going to act. If we want to keep Latinos participating in elections, if we want to keep BIPOC communities as a whole um, participating in elections, that means that these candidates have to be bold have to be strong in their stance and have to give people a reason to vote for them. And so for us, again, it's always looking at the long term and making sure that we are holding the present moment, but like thinking of the impact that the lack of their votes in favor of the types of policies that matter to our communities will have in future elections. Yes, our it shouldn't only matter when they're up for election. It should matter while they're in office and what they're going to be doing for their constituents, the ones that got them elected. And, um, you know, we at Colibri share the same sentiments. Uh, it, it, it infuriates us. Um, we see we see this abuse of power, and it's, it's heartbreaking, but um, we are grateful to you and um, to your entire team that is actually being strategic and listening to the community um, because I think the biggest um, threat is for them is the the power of the numbers and the power of the knowledge and so uh, the work never stops right uh, there's there's always something that you have to be fighting for but um, I always say you guys fight the good fights for our communities and and it does take heart to do this. So um, thank you for, for sharing. I know that this this boils your blood, but um, it was important to be able to speak to this um, specifically because it's it's um, it's in our face right now and it's pretty, 
it's um it's pretty centric of everything that's happening the other um i wanted to move on to when when we look at um english and spanish language um campaigns and strategy what do you think is the best strategy when we're approaching our latino voters i mean you have to you have to be able to speak to them in a way that resonates with them, right? You can't just you can't just use Google Translate and um, expect the outcome to be to be the same. English and Spanish are two different languages, and thus have different words have different meanings, phrases have different intentions, um, and especially here in Arizona, when you have such a large Latinx population, but also mostly Mexican American. We need to bring elements in which people can connect with immediately while hearing the message. That's a, and a huge part of why the partnership with Colibri has been so great because we've been able to t- kind of hone in um, into what our name represents as an organization, Lucha. And the first thing most uh, Latinx voters hear when they hear Lucha um, is, you know, Lucha Libre. And we've taken elements of Lucha Libre and, and put them in our messaging from hearing a, a bell ring where it sounds like a championship fight's about to get started or, you know, referring to candidates and referring to our um, members and volunteers and supporters as, you know, campeones and luchadores and luchadoras and putting out the notion that, um, you know, Lucha at its heart of hearts means to to fight and to struggle um, and to push for what's right. And we understand that when we're communicating in Spanish, we need to have a certain way of communication, right? But we also have to know that Latinos, especially voters, Latino voters, are are also English speakers, right? We're not a monolith. We're not all 100% Spanish speakers. We're not all 100% or only partly English speakers. So we understand that each level of communication, whether it be to youth in English or adults in Spanish, um, senoras, senores, um, we need to ensure that they can see the communication and they can have the conversation and we can connect deeply on who we are, where we came from, the struggles that we've all had to experience, especially living in a state like Arizona, when you have racial profiling, when you have just heat, we can have fun conversations about the heat and just how um, how we used to cool off in, in the summer. And organizing is about that, like that deep-rooted connection so that it's not always about politics. It's about what our culture represents to us and, and how it is part of our day-to-day lives. And so communication on elections, being able to use bright colors, being able to um, communicate in a simple language for anybody to understand is key to being able to get folks to hear the messages you're trying to put out. I agree with you on that, (laughs) definitely. Go ahead, Alex. Can I, yeah, let me jump in here. I plus one everything that Tomas said, and then at its core, um, this false choice narrative is a function of white supremacy. It's a function of capitalism. And, you know, Latinos are a trillion dollar industry, 
And so you see these major corporations that are marketing to Latinos in their language, in their colors, in the nuances of like, you know, Puerto Rican slang versus Mexican slang versus Colombian, you know, speak. Yet, when it comes to the most fundamental um, aspect of our lives and our political growth and power building, somehow the investment runs out. Somehow the resources come into question. And so this false choice of whether we should be marketing in Spanish or using... um, you know, traditional art pieces or iconic um, people like Selena in Arle or Juan Graviel or Walter Mercado, right? Like all of that comes into question because there is a um, there is a threat of the political power that Latino communities one are building and yielding now. But also the fact that in Arizona by 2030, we will be the majority. However, the majority um, also needs to be educated and brought into the process because though we will be the majority, that doesn't mean that we will, you know, be political. And so for us, we are acutely thinking of 2030 and the impact and the growth and the political power that we want to wield um, so it's incredibly important for us to name the the false choice um, that a lot of these conventional wisdom apparatuses that are, you know, in D.C. that are looking at swing voters and are looking at majority voters and kind of like tossing the polling away when it comes to Latinos or the polling is often inadequate um, and does not serve our communities. Um for us, it's important to work with firms like Colibri because you all help us in really um, reaching our communities in authentic and generative, long-term and long-lasting ways. Thank you. That's why we love working with you guys. Um, I think one of the things that, yeah, why our partnership is so strong is because you do give us um, creative um, liberty and and because we both share that what whatever goes out, whether um, you know it's a, a mail piece, a, a digital ad, TV spot, that it has to be culturally centric, respectful. Um, and one of the things that I genuinely really appreciate the most out of your organization is that you always want to put your members in the forefront of all of your materials. Uh, that goes a long way because households, household members could relate to those individuals. You, um, they're human. They're here in Arizona. We're not using stock art. We're not um, the the the. That's how every campaign should be. And you know why you are um, why you make such an impact is because you believe that um, and you run with it. Yes, um, I shared with you in the past how many times haven't we been looked, um, uh, overlooked because we're not in D.C., because we're not white men running, um, you know, the strategy or we're not white men um, that are digital experts. And so 
um, our firm continues to be committed to raising the bar too for other minorities to be in these in this space and own it. Um, and the other thing I also continue to see is that when we try to look at a certain market or do market research with polling, minorities are always the smallest sample size. And they want um, the, the strategy is to run a campaign with uh, such a small sample size and it's dictating language, it's dictating values. And, and that's the one thing that we always challenge pollsters is like, okay, so you have a sample size of 100 Latinos and there's about four, four and a half million, four, four million Latinos in Arizona. Um, you are gonna run a campaign that based on 100 Latinos and then you're gonna layer it to be in Spanish when only five of the participants spoke Spanish. So those are other areas that I think that we just have to continue to push because that's, we have to have a true representation of what our community is if we're gonna be getting advice from these firms and outfits um, and, and we will continue to challenge that any day. And now to close it up, um, and it's a little bit um, related to this last question. Um, you know, our partnership together, we've won several awards. Uh, uh, we've been um, blessed to work with you, um, you know, in the past year since, since our inception. Um, and we're honored, you know, that we've been able to do this together. Um, what, what do you think has made that work stand out? And I think you answered some of this. And, and how, um, how how does the lucha feel about these awards and um, and and you know because they are from the marketing side, but you as an organization, how do you feel about these awards when um, you know when we're when we are um, awarded? You know, we we operate from a, a very passionate and sometimes we jokingly refer to ourselves as petty. So at first I was thinking, why couldn't these awards happen in 2018 when we could have traveled to the award show and had some fun? Um, <laughs> but, Don't worry, um, you're gonna be a party. <laughs> <laughs> and so, no, but I, I'll pass it to Alex to talk about like just how awesome my partnership is because I think we all touched on it. But I think what makes our work together great is the communication we have with each other and the understanding that you know, from the communities we come with and the families we come with, um, but also the the rigor that we've had to work in to overcome biases in our particular industries when it comes to work, especially as you were mentioning, Alex hit it on with the white supremacy tip and, and you mentioned it with dealing with white consultants, right? At the end of the day, we're having to fight against a dominant culture that does not particularly enjoy when other cultures stand out as being more effective and more unique when it comes to the work that typically is occupied by these white men and, and yes i think the i always like to call it the sauce like what's in the salsa that makes it so good between our partnership and um that sauce is the that we keep it real we keep it authentic mm -hmm. and that we come from our communities. 
I think, you know, as Tomas was saying that even to be getting these awards, right, we're, we're two organizers, Tomas and I, that have been incredibly underestimated in our leadership. And our members are also reflective of that. Our members at one point in their life and still are underestimated. But the way that we show up and we disrupt the status quo and the way that we demonstrate that we are powerful in our authenticity, in sharing our stories, in being vulnerable, um, I think that we have found that you know special recipe together. And it's undeniable when you see the results. Um, and also when you look at the art and you look at the colors and you look at the vibrancy of who our people are through a male piece, when you see it in a billboard, right? Like Arizona is a state that has um, become so insular because of culture of policing. And so not only are, is what we're doing um, disrupting the status quo of traditional campaign um, one-size-fits-all approaches toward communities of color. But what we are doing also is disrupting the status quo of that targeting, of that being inside, of hiding. It's it's making our communities feel like they're seen and heard and are able to come out and be proud out loud together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and when we look at the, you know, the, the Polly Awards and you being awarded as the um, having the best um, and the most powerful powerful mailer in the entire nation um, and it being um, recognized and awarded by USPS. I can't even imagine how many mailers have gone through their desk, thousands and thousands. And it's a true honor to see that um, one that we've won together and then more that we're raising the bar for marketing and that it's not the... It's not those um, those DC East Coast firms that won this award because it's it's one of it's that one award that every every consultant wants to win and and to see it um, to see that we we all earned it and we um, we received that award is it's a huge honor and it's it's historic uh, and and it tells you that. We are continuing to elevate and raise the bar, and our work will continue to even get even better and make um, make a bigger impact. I completely agree. This is only the beginning. People haven't even seen all the things yet. So I know. Stay tuned. <laughs> yes. Well, wait. There's more. I always, I always say that. Say that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now we're going to have, um, we want to open this up to um, a couple of questions, Alex and Tomas, um, from, our, from our, our group here. Um, and if, if um, anybody wants to um, jump in and ask a question from our guest, please do so. You can go ahead and raise your hand. And once you raise your hand, we'll let you up so you can speak. Uh, I would like to ask a question. Um, 
I would like to know uh, for our co-executive directors of Lucha, how do you see intersectionality manifesting when we talk about Latino voters and activists? Alex, you want to jump in and then I can go after? Oh, sure. Um, so how do I see, I'm just going to repeat your question, Genevieve. It's how do I see intersectionality uh, when it comes to uh, Latino voters? Is that right? Yes, Latino voters and activists. Okay, perfect. Um, you know, we are, we're at a really important moment in activism and organizing um, and issues where there were harms done um, as the nonprofit industrial complex was created and formalized to house, um, you know, activism and organizing. So in many ways, it initially kind of served to placate. And so a lot of this, you know, conversation around um, the, the revolution will not be funded. It's true, but I think, you know, the systems that be, the systems of oppression tried to so that it could serve to minimize the impact that we're having. But as we're in this really important moment of really understanding that the systems of oppression um, are coming after every single BIPOC um, person of color and also poor white communities. And so what we are seeing now is that we're trying to figure out as grassroots organizations that are really entering into rigor and into analysis, how we begin to bridge narratives. And so you probably the best place that you're seeing this is the same system that is detaining and deporting our communities is the same system that is also um, killing and over-policing black communities. And so, right, it's the acknowledgement that our struggles are combined um, and that we have to begin to figure out what the narratives are that we need to begin to break through. Um, the narratives that the right has been pushing um, in their agenda for over 40 years, and they're already on to the next 40 years of their agenda setting. And so this rugged individualism, right, like, um, and so many others that for us, um, it's really beginning to figure out how do we build collective and unified campaigns? How do we show up for one another? Um, right as we were talking about voter suppression and we were experiencing COVID, we also saw the uprising of black community standing up against the murders. And so it's like the the immediate question for us is like, how do we show up in an election moment um, with our brothers and sisters in solidarity? How do we do better amongst our organizations? And so I don't want to say that we have an answer, but I do want to say that we are um, beginning this very long uh, conversation on you know, at its core is generations of trauma and oppression that we're beginning to unpack. Um, and we're beginning to, you know, show its ugly face. Um, and we're seeing its ugly face in through the social media. Um, 
you know, different platforms. But also as community organizers and activists, we're trying to figure out like how we build bridges between our organizing, our electoral programs, our digital programs to be able to raise each other's narratives um, and demonstrate that these are a common struggle and not separate struggles. Thank you. That was so insightful, Alex. Um, I'm just going to invite if there's an additional question. We have about five minutes left. Um, Maybe one more question and then we can just wrap it up. Well, I've been meaning to ask you, Alex and Tomas, um, I mean, you have such a a large organization and um, it's just been so remarkable. What is one of the most, um, uh, like what accomplishment? I mean, I, you know, you have so many, but what are you most, what was one moment that really stuck with you that you knew like, you know, we're really moving, we're making change? Oh man, I think you know. I'll, I think we give, we'd love to give one each. Um, you know, honestly, we we made we accomplished a lot of incredible things, and it's been a help with our members and everything. But I, I honestly think the proudest moment um, that I see in the organization is when I see our community grow. When they, you know, when we we've had staff that began working in this movement at 18 years old um, and now is our communications director, right? And so, like, seeing the progression of our community is something that we're most proud of and um, we're just happy that we can build an organization um, where you can where you can feel like you belong no matter how much of a misfit you are. And I think we try to build an organization that's welcoming to people that feel like they want to contribute, but don't always feel at home. And I think I'm just proudest to, I'm proudest of our organization being able to do that. Um, Moreover, everything, because I think the empowerment of our community, the long-term empowerment of our youth is, um, is the number one goal. That's why we do this work. This is going to be an emotional question for me. (laughs) So bear with me if I get teary. Um, When we, um, you know, embarked on this experiment together, it was really scary because Tomas is well, my best friend and you know I was concerned that you know having this type of a work relationship where we would see each other you know close to 24 7 all the time would have an impact on our friendship and I think you know it's proven the exact opposite um and so We have lived so many amazing moments together, you know, through our organizing years, but so many special moments through Lucha together. And 
um, I'll surface one where, you know, we were both taken back um, just by like the, we had that um, where we really felt like we were doing something right. Like we were building um, something beautiful, something transformative, something rooted in people. Um, and with all of the lessons learned from the past um, of the organizations that we had been a part of that we didn't, you know, we didn't appreciate some practices um, that were within those organizations. And so we finished um, our political education training with a um, money and politics session. And this was the very last session of this training um, that was also new to us. We decided after 2016 that the Trump election was um, terrible and that our members were demanding to figure out, like, how did we win minimum wage, get rid of our PIO, but still elect Trump. And so we decided that we were going to name the systems of oppression, white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism. And so what we, at the end of this training, one of our members who was undocumented stood up and she said, for the first time ever, I feel like I could be president. And to just have someone feel their power so much was just like, it was a marker of like, we're building something different. We're building something real and something that people, you know, feel proud of and that um, transforms the, the vision of what they thought for themselves for the future and aspire for more. And so, you know, that's the dream that we're building and uh, we, we want to continue building that. And um, yeah, that's my story. You guys always leave me so speechless, full of emotion. Um, it's like I feel your energy and I, I can't thank you enough for sharing this space uh, with us and our guests and, um, you know, just being so transparent. Um, and we look forward to continuing this journey with you to help you um, to be a part of that community change. And I love um, every time that you visualized uh, your 10 year plan. I love that long term um, vision that you have. And um, from, you know, on behalf of our entire team, thank you for joining our clubhouse session. Uh, if, um, please, if you don't follow Lucha, uh, make sure you follow them on every social platform. There's always great content. Um, they're very active in the community, um, resourceful. And if you want to volunteer or donate, um, we, we, we need to support organizations like um, Lucha to continue the mission for our communities. So um, this closes up our, our um, chat today, but thank you to everybody who joined us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you.